One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of Your Own Personal Beatles. My name is Jack Pelling. With me, as always... It's me, Robin Allender, with a slightly deeper voice. Got a slight yes. cold, gone a bit Tom Waitsy, but, you know, all good. As I recover from my winter lurgy, you seem to have come down with it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I hope that you didn't get it from me, because we've, we've seen each other quite a lot recently, so chances yeah. are I have infected you with some, with some grisly seasonal disease yeah but um <laughs> if uh, sorry about that no don't worry but um yeah welcome to another episode we're going to be chatting to doc brown a little bit later on in the episode he's our guest this week and we chat to him about his sort of formative musical experiences his journey from being a rapper and a musician into being a comedian and an actor and and we talk quite a lot about the beatles influence on hip-hop and so in sampling and stuff so there's lots of good juicy stuff to get your teeth into there it was really yeah. good yeah he was a really nice guy and it was a good chat and he played some really fun hip-hop uh i guess you're including a little clip of that there is a little clip there's yeah. as much as we can get away with right. but, um, <laughs> yeah. as always we'll pop any links in the in the description and if you go to personalbeatles.com forward slash episodes you can find out a little bit more there so that's coming up a little bit later in the yeah. show one of the things I saw you at this week was, um, and possibly infected you with <laughs> um, whatever it is you've got. We went to see uh, John Higgs's book launch, previous yep. guest John Higgs, which was really fun. And then we went to see Let's Eat Grandma, who we mentioned back in episode one as one of our records of the year at Coco, which was superb. It was a brilliant gig. And I guess the reason we're mentioning it here, they are big Beatles fans. Haven't they said that Lucy in the Sky is like their fa their favourite Yeah, song? I think Rosa picked it as one of her sort of nine most influential tracks. Mm. But I think Let's Seek Grandma are just so fascinating. The album's called Two Ribbons, the new album. And the fascinating thing about seeing them live and listening to the album is this friendship, which is very Beatles-y, let's face facts. Mm. Yeah, They just is. seem to be able to kind of read each other's minds and... Watching them perform, I, just, I don't think I've ever seen a performance like that, where there are these two incredible performers who are both, you know, so unique, but also so kind of so locked in with each other. And there were some, you know, mm. amazing bits where, like, one of them would hold down a chord on a keyboard and the other one would run over and carry on holding the chord and then go off and do something else. And they do all these kind of strange kind of clapping and dancing moves together, all very kind of syncopated. It was a yeah. brilliant gig, just, you know, amazing songwriters, you know. Brilliant songwriters, and especially considering how, how young they are. I think they're in their early 20s, if that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does remind you of that sort of tractor beam gaze that John and Paul have in uh, some of the greatest moments of Get Back. Yeah. Where there's a lot of telepathy going on. Uh, but yeah, superb. One of my gigs of the year, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, and, and do check out the album. It's it's fantastic. Fingers crossed we might be able to get them on one day, but, uh, yeah. you know, a little bit of arm twisting involved, I think. Yeah, if you're listening, please, please come on the show. <laughs> I, I'm just joking, but please come on the show. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we've also should mention that this week sees the release of the long anticipated Revolver remixes by Giles Martin, along with a load of odds and rarity ends in the Super Deluxe box set. Mm. We've done a proper deep dive of it, track by track, not for the faint hearted, but uh, it was a really interesting chat and that is going to be available to the Patreon and Apple podcast subscribers this week as well. So if you want to hear our thoughts on that and it is, you know, a completely fascinating project and dare I say the most radical and controversial of these new remixes. Yeah, it was a really fascinating chat. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles. Or if you're an Apple podcast user, you can just subscribe right within the app. Mm-hmm. How easy. Yeah, it was a good chat. I like the way we went through track by track. You know, for me, the box set is all about those kind of um, early takes, uh, some mm-hmm. demos. You see the songs developing. And it is just fabulous to have the the mono mixes kind of available in a kind of quite easily accessible way now but yeah really good good chat and i did go on for far too long about the tape speeds that were used in rain so <laughs> apologies in advance for that if you want an indicator of just how deep we dove <laughs> <laughs> dived i should say um then yeah it did, did get a little bit more nerdy than this podcast is but if, if that is your thing then get involved also by signing up to the patreon and the apple podcast subscription you do get ad free versions of all our episodes and all the old extended ones ones from previous series um, as well as some future bonus ones so you know hopefully lots of goodies in there for you yeah and please remember too to to leave us a nice five-star review if you're enjoying the show and that's all i'll say about that (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair enough yeah if you want to follow us on the social medias and stuff you can get involved with all of that and um correspondence wise you can chat to us by emailing jack at homespunsounds.com as always but before we get to doc brown we'll talk a little bit about this week's weekly wings take it away So this week, uh, Jack, it's a, it's a song that you've chosen. So tell, tell us a bit about your, it is. We- your weekly wings. Yes. Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of Wings Over America, and that's sort of how I got to know Wings before Best Of albums and then discovering each of the albums. And you you said, oh, pick something off that maybe, because it is one of my faves. It's almost wall-to-wall hits, mm. especially in the sort of second half of it. But one of the things I like about it is that I didn't really have any um, frame of reference for how well-known a lot of these Wings songs were because I wasn't around in the 70s. Yeah. Um, so obviously I know all the Beatles ones and all the sort of mega smashes. Yeah. But the one that I always used to love and I still absolutely love is Call Me Back Again, mm. which is off Venus and Mars. And for all intents and purposes, for this regular feature, it's not one I would usually go to because there's you know dissecting it musically there's there's not a huge amount there you know it's ostensibly quite an anachronistic sort of do-wop track in six eight although it's not actually six eight it's It's twelve eight eight, technically if you're going to get bogged down in that sort (laughs) of thing i think there's an interesting link to be made with oh darling for sure Yes, well, I was yeah, I was going to come onto that, and then we talked with Sam Carter about Paul's vocal quite mm. extensively, especially in this era of live wing stuff. When for me and for Sam, this is peak vocal McCartney. Yeah, he's amazing on this. 
And this song in particular is probably my favourite on the whole album. It's just the vocal is extraordinary and it's also kind of fantastically over the top in a kind of glammy way. Yeah. They always say that, don't, you know, don't start too strong with songs like this because you won't leave yourself much room. But wow, I mean, he really, he doesn't, mm. you know, you think that he's kind of at capacity in the first sort of couple of minutes of it and it really just keeps on going and going. He's never sounded better, I think. And I really love Paul, the unashamed entertainer. Mm. And especially at this point, he just sounds so joyous and happy. Yeah. After a decade of sort of misery and a lot of horrible stuff. This is him with his new band in these huge arenas um, on top of the world, really. And it just sounds like pure joy. I just think he's so underrated as a singer, especially mm. in this era. I do I think this album I really like, not that it's sort of particularly well recorded, but it sort of captures that era of like the first stage of stadium rock yeah. so well. The sound of the crowd and the they haven't, you know, got rid of all the echo and the bass drum does a sort of double thump. It sounds like it's got like ADT on it mm. because it's rattling around the stadium, but it just sounds so colossal. Yeah. Yeah, it's just impossible not to uh, have a big grin on your face when you listen to this, walking to the pub after work or something like that. This is one of the ones I stick on. Yeah, it's great. And it's about Paul McCartney finding his audience and, and being able to incorporate those Beatles songs again as well in Wings Over America, I think. And I yeah. think it's really interesting hearing the, the, the versions of the Beatles songs, particularly Lady Madonna, which sounds really cool. But yeah. the, I'd love the way they've slightly changed it. It kind of goes... It's so yeah. 70s. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just that slight it's syncopation. It's definitely a bit of a sort of Soul Train influence or something. Yeah. Just but, before we tip into sort of disco. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is it is very poppy and it's very... I mean, I can see why people, especially more kind of uh, Lennon-y fans, might slightly cringe at, at this sort of era of... I know we talked many moons ago to Christian Madeline about... Paul's Spaniel's enthusiasm for things. Mm. And this is there in spades, and it's so infectious that I just, you know, I don't, it bypasses every cynical fiber yeah. of my brain. It <laughs> goes brilliant. straight into the pleasure cortex. <laughs> anyway, on with the cast. On with the cast, indeed. Um, we'll be back at the end of the show to talk a little bit about what is coming up. Um, but for now, please enjoy our brilliant conversation with Ben Bailey Smith, aka Doc Brown. So we've got a fantastic guest this week. Robin and I are absolutely thrilled to have uh, actor, rapper, comedian, Doc Brown, a.k.a. Ben Bailey-Smith. Hello. Hello, Ben. How's it going? Yeah, it's pretty good. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thrilled you're up for it after reading that you were a, a Beatles fan in the paper, mm. which is, uh, if you are going to be someone we admire and uh, mention the Beatles in the paper... We are going to That's, that's going to happen. So. <laughs> They're going to find you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm absolutely delighted to have you and uh, chat to you about sort of the Beatles' informative experiences for a bit. Mm. So obviously you've got quite a broad musical taste, as anyone who saw that sort of article will know, and the Beatles are kind of part of that. But yeah. where did music sort of come into your, your life and what part did the Beatles play in the beginning of that sort of thing? Well, you know... I've seen photos of of, of my mum at, uh, at Carnival and not in hell, pregnant with me, you know. So uh, music was just there from the start. I don't remember a time when there wasn't music in my house being played. I guess the, the, the wild card 
element of it was that my mum and dad had such differing musical tastes, you know. Um, my mum was right. like bang into her like eighties reggae, uh, soul, rare groove, eighties R and B that kind of thing, a little bit of pop, and my dad was like folk and like honky tonk jazz. Uh, and a bit of like 50s, like avant nice. avant-garde jazz, Milt Jackson, Miles Davis, that kind of thing, mm. Coltrane. But they both like the Beatles. And mm. I don't remember, like I say, similar to the thing with with like reggae and, and carnival music, I don't remember a time when the Beatles wasn't played in my house. In fact, there was like a Beatles songbook um for the piano that was knocking about that um that I remember me and my sister learning all the the lyrics from from Beatles songs very very early on that was the that was the Beatles are my first memory of seeing song lyrics written down so they were just always there right. always was that the piano book with the like slightly mad psychedelic kind of kaleidoscopic covers yeah 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 it was like chunky it didn't look like any other piano book because most of them are quite thin do you know what I mean? This one, I guess, yeah. obviously, because they just had so many bloody songs. It was, like, really thick, yeah. you know, pages, like, falling away from the binding and stuff like that, yeah. And were you just, uh, were you learning the songs as well, or were you just, like, reading the lyrics and learning the lyrics? Mainly just reading the lyrics, because, I mean, I, I played violin and I, I played piano, but I just hated, like, homework, so <laughs> I, I never practised yeah. and... Um, so it was more just like learning the lyrics and, and and singing along. Me and my sister used to harmonize a lot. We used to sing just all the stuff we discovered from my parents that had nice harmonies, stuff like the Everly Brothers, you know, um, where, I mean, the Everly Brothers was, was like, con every song was, was harmonized. And, and the Beatles, of course, had a lot of songs where Lennon and McCartney were, were harmonizing. So we used to just do that a lot as kids, mm. just singing along. Or just singing a cappella. And was there any particular album or era that you kind of were drawn to? Because I think as a kid, it's really interesting, especially if you kind of grow up with the mm. like red and blue albums. How it's yeah, all yeah. kind of all one, all kind of blurs into one <coughs> Absolutely. Beatles kind of canon. <laughs> yeah. But was there anything in particular that kind of sprung out? Yeah, it was Abbey Road. It was Abbey Road. We had we had a cassette mm. <clears throat> of Abbey Road and. Uh, mm. Uh, I think it's just the first is the first one we really sort of discovered, um, and I think mm. you know like here comes the sun is is such a sort of like little kid friendly sort of song feels kind of positive and it's very like it's got that sort of lullaby element to it. I think for little kids they just like latch onto it. Mm. The, the the Beatles are, are are a band I think in in a long line of of interesting acts that could be seen as alternative but whose melodies are actually basically nursery rhymes you know like mm. sesame street level of catchiness which is yeah. the thing that sort of hides the um there's that just deceptive layer of like complication because there's mm. lyrics and instrumentation of course but you know i i think it's really interesting how melodic and immediately accessible the bit even the their most complex works tend to be and i think it's because they've got that almost nursery rhyme level to the the melodies the 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 the, the simplicity it's very similar to 
I mean, I've seen interviews with Evan Dando, mm. Kurt Cobain, when they've said like nursery rhymes was the, the thing they were going for, you know, yeah. in terms of the simplicity of the melody and then all the complication comes around that once you've got it, you know what I mean? And I think the Beatles were real kind of like legends of yeah. that, <laughs> that kind of approach to music making. Like, don't overthink the melody, like just get a nice catchy melody down, then we can overthink everything else. And it, it made their songs either immediately infectious or eventually uh, uh, yeah. addictive. I guess that's probably the most common answer of like when people, you know, how people get in is through literally singing them mm. as nursery rhymes and stuff. Yeah, did you? Did your kids ever learn to do Yellow Submarine in school and stuff? Uh, I, don't, I actually don't know about that. We definitely sang it in school. I, did, I forgot about Yellow Submarine. Yeah, we sang that in school. I don't, mm. I don't don't know if my kids is. I don't I don't think they really do sing songs in schools anymore, man. I think that, really? that time's <laughs> passed. It's all sort of like drill now. It's like <laughs> drill and trap. Yeah. No, no, I, I, they don't. They, they don't really. They don't really do sing alongs and stuff. But um, ah, it's a shame. To when miss I was that. at primary school, it was very clappy, clappy kind right, of vibe yeah. in the eighties. Um, mm. Different time. One of the songs you mentioned in that article was In My Life, which you, you said has that nursery rhyme quality. And I think I'm right in saying that's the song you want played at your funeral. <laughs> was that what you yeah, said? Yeah, so, absolutely. Well, why, why, what, what is it particularly about that song? There's a handful of songs that, for me, that it, like everything has to stop. Everyone needs to stop talking, you know, or whatever I'm doing, if it comes on shuffle in my earphones, uh, everything stops. And then for a couple of minutes, I'm just listening and sing or singing along and or singing along. And there's only a handful of songs that do that. And in my life, it's always been one of them. And it was really interesting about that song for me is that it felt nostalgic and it felt profound and it felt uh, important when I was like 12 years old mm. <laughs> with no understanding of what they're saying at all. And now I've actually lived a life. It's just taken on a thousand times more resonance. It ne it's never stops being relevant to me, that song, you know, ever. And, and it's just grown and, and changed alongside me. Yeah, it's crazy that it's sort of song that you would usually write in your autumn years written by someone who's sort of in their mid-twenties, mm. which never Yeah, which is just another, yeah, <laughs> another example of, like, just everything about the Beatles is, is odd you know, in mm. terms of when you actually break it down and look at what was written and when and when it came yeah. out. Because it, the, the Beatles feel like they are, oh, they must have, they must have been like 30 years of writing and recording together and putting this song out and the journey from like shaking their like bowl cuts to like being on the roof with the beard it must have been like a lifetime and you look at it it's like it was like 10 years <laughs> Do you know what I mean it was like no yeah. time at all that the, yeah. those guys were together the, yeah. just a phenomenal and bizarre journey that could only have been undertaken by four childhood friends like you just you can't there's not even bands like that anymore you know no. you might get a band with like a couple of brothers in it or a couple of sisters you know and that's what kind of the glue behind the band but you don't get bands where they're all from the same area or grow up grew up in the same place like not anymore mm. no it's, it's, they're, yeah. they're so unique 
Yeah. And there's there's so much about them we t- we take for granted. Not, I'm never going to s- sit here and say the Beatles are underrated. I would I'm not not I don't mean that at all, but I mean it's like their myth and their legends sometimes overtakes the actual stone cold facts about them, which mm. are sort of way more remarkable in their apparent blandness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the Beatles had lived extraordinary lives even at that point in 1965 and had dealt with a lot of grief as well. Mm. And, you know, I think when you think about In My Life in the context of Stuart Sutcliffe, it it becomes very moving. It becomes more personal to to them, I think. And I don't know, it seems to be... They're so young to be writing a song that's so profound about about grief, I think. I don't know. I don't know the background of the song. I've never looked into it. I've never read about it. Fill, fill me in. I think it was just that they wanted to go down this autobiographical kind of route, which kind of ended up with you know songs like Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. So it's, it's their first kind of attempt at doing that. There's a really nice bit. I had a quote from John Lennon, which was to do with the fact he wrote some original lyrics, which kind of name checked lots of place names, and he called it the most boring sort of what I did on my holidays tr- bus trip type song. <laughs> and then he re- re- reworked the, the words to kind of make them sort of slightly more v- vague and maybe more universal. Yeah, you can see it in the British Library. Actually, it's got the um, got his handwritten lyrics, and you can see that crossed out verse. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's definitely. Definitely better after a bit of retouching. Yeah. But it's so amazing how when they got to Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, like in a year they were able to do that kind of name-checking thing. Like they, they'd really become writers, I think, at that point, you know. And In My Life is this stepping stone to that as well, I think. Yeah. It's also one of the first sort of songs where they're not, um, you know, right. It's not a love song and it's not a, a, you know, a story about, you know, someone else in the third person. It's sort of, it's very direct and... Mm. It's, it's the first sort of real kind of poetic uh, first-person one, really. Mm. Yeah, the whole of Rubber Soul is is kind of no, a notable, like, move away from, from the old style, actually, the more I think about it. Mm. S- sort of strange, off-centre, first-person stories and whatnot. Norwegian Woods mm. on that album, right? Yeah, yeah, that's another one. Where does that sort of era sit in your, um, you know? Sim- similar. They, those albums were both knocking around. It's really, I think, I find it interesting that the, the albums that weren't there, I only like semi sought out. I never like coveted them. So like the White Album mm. was never in my house. Revolver was never in my house. And even though there's songs on both those albums that I love. I don't. I still, to this day, don't really have a strong relationship with e- either of them. Mm. You know, I think it's about mm. what you hear when you're young, isn't it? Yeah, man. A- Abbey Road. You know, I, I find I find them arresting, and they, they 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 throw me back all the way. Yeah, the more I think about Rubber Soul now that you mention that that change in direction, you almost feel it like on the record because I feel like Drive My Car is like quite early on in that album. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So that, opening track on the UK version. Oh, there you go. So like that feels like a like an old Beatles song, you know. Baby, you can drive my car. Mm. And baby, I love you. And the beat, 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 beat. It's like <laughs> it feels not borderline corny. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of like you can see them shaking, shaking their bowl cuts, and then all of a sudden you've got <laughs> these this weird personal melancholy, and like you say, not not about 
love necessarily or, or like not def, definitely not traditional love songs so it's almost like you can hear the transition happening on that album within that album yeah it's definitely the point for me where things start to get really interesting much as I, I do love that earlier sort of you know more um you know girl groups he's stacksy kind of stuff mm. but um so when you were sort of getting into things like Abbey Road and having such a broad kind of music scope in your sort of household, how did that sort of change what you and your sort of contemporaries were listening to at school in the sort of 80s and 90s and stuff? Because mm. a lot of people that grew up, especially in the 80s, found that like the Beatles sort of have come in and out of fashion and the 80s seems like a period where they were at a bit of a kind of low point uh in yeah. terms of sort of coolness so was it quite unusual your music tastes growing yeah up? definitely and I, I i kept a lot of it either to myself or to whatever tribe that i knew accepted it so i was i was very good and still am to this day at just like slotting in you know with different groups mm -hmm. of people um so i i just sort of instinctively knew at secondary school like this is a moment where I can geek out about the Beatles. This is a moment where I can admit my obsession with the Lemonheads. This is where I need to focus really hard on how, like, outrageous that that um, that Snoop Dogg verse was. How, how complex that that Nas lyric was. You know, it it was like picking your moments, and I was sort of ready yeah. for each because I was listening to all of these things with equal intensity and 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 a sense of uh uh you know i got a sense of importance from from all of this music it, that 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 period of my life sort of like 92 93 94 i really started separating like music that meant something to the creator that's something that was super heartfelt from pop that was like fine but just fun do you know what i mean it was just like made yeah for mass mm. consumption you know stock aiken and waterman like let's go you know nothing wrong with it but I, that was that was just the age where mm. i suddenly started realizing hold on there's there's two completely different ways of making music you know did you continue that to have that sort of broad scope or did you have a kind of Damasai moment where it was was there one album that changed everything for you you know in your formative years whether in hip-hop or wherever it might be yeah I think when I heard Illmatic by Nas I I just thought hold on a second because there was a lot of pop rap um out there and this kid who was you know only a couple of years older than me had created this sort of poetic masterpiece and i just thought i need to find more stuff like this you know and i was listening to tribe called quest and the far side and um you know obviously dr dre but i realized i was scratching the surface and there was so much creative rap out there and i just went down a wormhole really and then from i'd say from like 97 to like 2005 I don't think I listened to anything but rap. And then post-2005, I stopped collecting vinyl. I, uh, my first daughter was born. I think these things were all linked because you can't be spending money on vinyl when you've got a, a, 
person to feed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I really started going back. And of course, the other thing it, it um, coincided with was the rise in the ability to listen to music digitally. So mm. suddenly I found myself going back and listening to old stuff again. And then also as my kids, you know, became babe, you know, toddlers, you don't want to play rap with loads of swearing in it. So I would go back and find <laughs> like more, some of the more gentle indie and, of course, yeah. the Beatles. And, yeah. Um, yeah, since then it's just been a steady, you know, you, I mean, you know yourself a bit more as you get older and I just know that I love hip-hop, I love rap and I love indie music equally i just it's just the way it is and I, I listen to loads of other stuff but those two will always be at the the top of the pile and i think my taste for indie and even my taste for some rappers is inspired by the beatles oh really yeah in terms of the melodies that i'm looking for yeah you know i don't mm. realize it sometimes it's 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 symbiotic it's just like via osmosis that i'm you know, I really love that rap song. I really love this indie song. What what links them? And sometimes it's like a mm. s slight sense of vulnerability, a major key, uh, a, an almost nursery rhyme inflection to the chorus, uh, an incredibly welcoming and infectious melody. And 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 mm. where was the first place I learned I loved those things? It was it was from the Beatles. So. Mm. I think it also kind of imbues a lot of the kind of humour of a lot of, well, sort of mainly 90s hip-hop, a lot of those that kind of groups that you mentioned, like Tribe and stuff, there's always this kind of, the, the humour is very front and centre in the same way that Beatles sort of records always are. And and they're fun. Yeah. Definitely. 90s rap and 90s indie both took themselves way less seriously than... 2022 rap and 2022 <laughs> indie you know mm. so it was it was like that was a fun yeah. creative time um uh, and a and a good fun time to be a a, a young teenage listener i think there was uh yeah. there was a lot of innocence out there within the music even when it was made by heroin addicts <laughs> <laughs> about the um not just the kind of relationship of the beatles to hip-hop in terms of the beatles being sampled in hip-hop are there any kind mm. of things that stick out for you there in terms of or particular nods to the beatles in hip-hop records and things oh man yeah there, there's a few but yeah um you you hear it here and there i mean i sampled it myself in my life on on a song called in my life um when I, as a young rapper myself and um you know, it, it, there's some things that just sit so nicely on a four-four rap beat that it's it's impossible to ignore. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I don't know how he got away with it, but there's an amazing song by a rapper called Saigon who was this guy from Queens who, you know, came out of jail for like, after shooting like a couple of people, real gangster shit. And uh, he had a tune called NY Streets. And, and to this day, I love it. It's just the most aggressive song. But the sample, oh my days. It's just like, what? How did he think of that? It's so good. Welcome to Saigon, Gangsta nigga. Brazil. Brazil. Yes, yes, y'all. You don't quit. <laughs> this is street life. Nice. Is that sort of mid nineties? No, it's like uh, I would say maybe like oh five, oh six, something like oh, that, really? around no, about no, that what? time. But it's very you got very much that like old nineties yeah. like. 4-4 four, four beat to it which is probably because he was in mm. jail for 10 years do you know what I mean so yeah. <laughs> it was like referencing old stuff the tit 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 bit it's kind of yeah, it's not it's quite like, it's not quite quite sort of quantized so it's sort of yeah, it's, it's really like, nicely going around the beat and stuff yeah, yeah the best the best rap is always like that yeah mm. it sounds like a hi-hat yeah, yeah exactly it's like a sort of Dilla hi-hat yeah. um, that's so cool so yeah a girl is that from girl yeah it's girl yeah, isn't it's, it yeah, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, you have to have a pretty big checkbook to do things like that. <laughs> oh yeah, like I say, I don't know how he got away with it. I I I put out my one on on white label and could could never really release it, you know, um, because of that. You know, like mm. I don't think I could really have the cash to approach Michael Jackson's people at the time. <laughs> I, I really like the yeah. Pusha T, the new Pusha T album's got a good. Oh, song it's got a weird, like Jealous sort of guy. resung version of uh, 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 Jealous Guy. Yeah, yeah, it's the Donny Hathaway I version. I was yeah. dreaming of yeah. the past. It's yeah. really good. Works so well. It kind of just loops the past, yeah. the past, the past. It's like, yes, I can get on board with this. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> the great the Pusha past. lines on that song as well. Yeah, it's really great. good lines. Yeah, yeah. My favourite is where he says, mad because this bitch calling Lan Van Lanvin. That's my favourite line. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that reference to white people who would like be determined to call Kanye Kanye or Tupac. <laughs> you know, yeah. she listened to Tupac. There's no great line about he's got the dream house, but he doesn't like the kitchen or something as well. Isn't that yeah, that's the Kanye well? lyric on there. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about like Beatles and um, comedy mixing and 
and also how funny hip hop can be. Like, how how did you kind of merge mm. hip hop and stand up? And how do you kind of approach dealing with music and comedy and kind of separately and together kind of thing, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, first and foremost, it was not a thing that I thought deeply about at, at all. It was just like, I didn't know what else to do other than reference like what I knew, you know, mm. in the same way, I guess, like, at the time, if you saw a gay comedian, like that would be a big part of his or her shtick, you know, you see a, a, a black comedian, that's going to be a part of their shtick, you see a, a female comedian, there's going to be some references to being a woman. So I just thought, like, look, I'm a rapper, it'd be, just be weird not to, to mention it, you know. <laughs> Uh, and the only once you've mentioned it you've got to prove it so it, it happened very organically but then I realized like quite quickly there's a way of making this like the centerpiece and like that's special sort of magic trick that will, will win audiences over so I went about creating little comic vignettes that would be musical and I'd I'd watch some musical comedians and just thought oh, god terrible like i know a funny song about that and here's how it goes and <laughs> the way they'd introduce the songs would be lame the song <laughs> itself would be lame because it would be just like a song that already exists that they've changed the lyrics to and put some like funny lyrics in place of the original lyrics or if it was an original comedy song that they'd written the whole verse would be the setup so you're waiting mm. like 30 seconds <laughs> yeah yeah and then the, the chorus title. is yeah. is the funny reveal and i was just yeah. like whatever i do i just don't want it to be any of those things you've got to sort of make sure that both elements are really good because yeah. like it's like you're making it pretty difficult for yourself exactly so i started making original beats for starters i have original beats that actually were like quite heavy and um and i would time out these recordings so that I, I knew it so well I, i'd like record like six seconds of silence or something like that at the top or have an intro with no drums on it that was really sort of fades in very delicately. And then I would have a secret cue line for a sound man um, that would be like, when you hear the word pillow, <laughs> press play. <laughs> right? It'd yeah. be as random as that. Mm. So there'd be no introduction. I'd just be talking like I'm talking to you now. And then the beat would creep in. Nice. And I could, I'd be still talking and not acknowledging the music at all, watching people's faces go, what is that? You know, <laughs> and then I'd suddenly start rapping like seamless and then go, you know, at the end of the song, go straight back into um, telling jokes. And, and so I was, I'd sneak them in. Yeah. I'd sneak them in and it just worked a treat. I mean, I, I blew that circuit away. If I'd have kept on going, I, I'd be one of the biggest comedians in, in the UK right now. But I just... <laughs> I just didn't enjoy the job enough to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. Is there something as well about wanting to, I mean, having come from being a rapper into a comedian and then being a very successful comedian, is there something, you know, when you're making beats or whatever, that is there an urge to go back to a sort of seriousness or did you wrestle with the sort of credibility of it or yeah. anything like that? Yeah, there was, and I did. 2017, I, I put out a, yeah. my last quotes unquote serious album because I just felt I had a, a lot of stuff to say that I couldn't say in a in a jokey form and, and I, you know I needed to get back to my roots so I did it and then I put the album out and I toured the album 
And I realized I could never do this again because I would tour the album and there'd be 300 people in the venue and half of them were like, where's the fucking jokes? You know? <laughs> yeah. They're right. shouting out, like, tell us a joke to do something funny. And I was yeah. like, oh, God, this is not, it's not going to work. <laughs> the only shows that really worked were in Bristol and London. And it just didn't surprise me at all because I've always had a serious musical following in both cities. And, you know, they, they both those crowds were just so happy to see no jokes. You know, they were like, <laughs> rap for real, man. Because, like, that T-shit is all good. Yeah, very, very funny, well done. But, like, we want to see you really rap, you know? Yeah, and that's what I got from both sides. So those gigs were were beautiful, but the rest of the time it was hard, man. Yeah, people were just yeah. like, just tell us about tea. <laughs> oh god, okay. Is that what you want to see? I don't yeah. understand it. You want to see a joke that you've seen a million times? You want me to just tell that joke? <laughs> <laughs> well, what can you do? Was that sort of behind the decision to pivot into the, your kind of third prong of acting? Is that what no, I about? always wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be an actor yeah. long before I wanted to be a rapper or a comic. I, I wanted to be an actor when I was like six or seven years old. I just gave up on it when I was like 18 or 19 because I just thought, no one becomes an actor. Like, no one makes <laughs> mm. it. Like, it's just ridiculous. Just give it up. And I did. One of the worst decisions I ever made. I was studying performing arts at the time uh, oh. uh, uh, in uh, Norwich at UEA. And I just gave it up, went back to London. And I was just like, screw it. Um, and I went into youth work. And it wasn't until 10 years later that I actually thought, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like, this is your calling. And stand-up just got in the way, if anything, because I was, like, auditioning for stuff, but um, stand-up just took off. So it's it's really weird when people list all these things that I supposedly am, but <laughs> really I just think I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a writer and a performer, you know? I, I, mm. I, I sometimes write stuff for myself to perform, and if I'm not writing, I'm performing for someone else but the original dream was was to be an actor so i really feel like my creative life has come full circle you know and i've got the added bonus of having learned how to write creatively in the interim was there anything that helped with the comedy when when you got your musician hat on or from acting really or do you care to compartmentalize them a bit i do a little bit but um, the biggest help from comedy is the boldness, you know. Right. If you if you if you can do stand up, you can do anything creatively. I, I mean, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in in the world of of, of performing art. It's so fucking hard. It's like it's brutal, and and there's no there's no hiding place. There's no. There's not even any real victory, you know, because when you absolutely smash it, you experience that completely on your own and you're just celebrating on your own like a weirdo, mm. like full of a pump full of adrenaline with no one to share it with. So that's not great. And then the rest of the time you're dying on your ass, so, which is brutal. <laughs> I, I don't really understand people that love it. I, re I really don't. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I love elements of it. And I absolutely respect everyone who does it because there's nothing harder. 
But to love that, yeah. I, I just find it weird. It's the loneliest job on the planet. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, and this uh, interview that I've heard you mention before, but in the in that Andy Peebles interview that John does the day before he gets killed, he talks about how all he ever really wanted to be was a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think that's kind of weird. He just, yeah, he's like, yeah, I really wanted to be in Monty Python. It's like, mm. you're John Lennon. Yeah. <laughs> you still had that itch that you yeah, could Yeah, musicians scratch. always have that. And, and comedians want to be rock stars, you know. We we all just want what what we don't have, and 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 we see we we feel like the grass is greener on, on the other side. Whereas like, you know, when I when I went from comedy to touring that serious album, I, I loved going on that tour, mm. even with the gigs that didn't work, because I had my sound guy, I had my DJ, I had a couple of other musicians, I had two singers, you know, there was a a bus of us, you know, going around the country which I never had in 10 years of stand-up. It was just me on my own, in a car, on a train, mm. on a plane, go there, do it, come back. It's, it's lonely, man. Depends. So it, that's why I say it depends on the yeah. person. If you love that, then great. But for me, I don't love loneliness. <laughs> and stand-up is the loneliest gig on the planet. My experience of stand-up a lot of the time is um, feeling brief moments of elation and then just questioning my life choices more than I ever have for any other reason. <laughs> like the experience of listening back to a gig you've recorded on your phone. You, you do it. You do it as well. Yeah, yeah, but like um, not very frequently at the moment. Right. Okay. So you know, yeah. I'm not. I'm, but yeah, I think that that feeling of listening back to a gig when something's really died and like this, hearing the silence, and it's oh, like you can geez. hear the moment your self-confidence evaporates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like your phone couldn't be any quieter. It's like you can yeah. hear the atoms vibrating in the phone. <laughs> yeah. I think I probably would have been a better comedian if I listened back, if I recorded myself, but I just couldn't do it. Couldn't bear it. Never listened back once, ever, in 10 years. And right. I never I never watched myself either once yeah. in 10 years. Mm. I couldn't bear it. I was just like, oh, God, why would I? I just can't. <laughs> I'm just going to have to be yeah. better next time somehow without actually reviewing my work because yeah. I just couldn't bear to... I can watch myself acting because I just feel like it's not me. Yeah. But watching myself do stand-up, I was like, oh, gosh, shut up. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Jesus. Did you have the same thing with, with music? Because uh, always that... You no. can separate that as well. No, I've never had a problem listening to my own music, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's less naked somehow. Yeah. I mean, that's my problem with music is uh, I, I probably... But unfortunately, you have to listen to it back. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't make it. Yeah, true. <laughs> you have to, yeah. So you don't really have a choice, yeah. yeah. You touched on that. You interviewed Andy Peebles uh, for a programme you made for Radio 4 mm. a few years ago, who was one of the last people to interview... John Lennon. What do you kind of remember about that interview? Mm. Was there anything that really stayed with you from meeting him? I think one of the things that really stayed with me was his, uh, you know, his determination not to have like security up the arse, you know, and 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 to really want to like how much he loved New York, um, mm. because it's just so frustrating, isn't it? You know that that mm. thing when you when your heroes go and you're just like no 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 just don't do that don't make that decision mm -hmm. don't do, please don't do this don't do that you know we all have that with our, with our heroes that were taken 
too soon. You know, you look at uh, like so I say someone like Martin Luther King, and you're just like, ah, I know it was principle, but if you just didn't go to this march or if you just didn't antagonize these people and just let them stew for a couple of days you would have stayed alive you know so that that was the thing that i think really stuck with me the fact that uh andy had like um really seen like how unprotected he was considering he was you know one of the most famous people on the planet did you have a particular Beatle that you identified with or was a favourite of yours or were you a John guy? Yeah, it was always John, really. It was, me, and, me and my sister used to watch the 1988 um, Imagine documentary mm. on repeat because um, we had it on VHS and we just like watched it until the tape started to, to get weird. <laughs> mm. And obviously that's focused on john so it's a bit a bit unfair we didn't have a documentary about george or ringo or paul but yeah he struck me as funny and acerbic um you know being mixed race i i i i loved watching the interviews with sean because i was like oh my god he's got a mixed race kid like i just warmed to the dude mm-hmm. and it was weird it's to me it seemed like it does right now that he's been dead for 40 years it seemed like that when I was watching the VHS, but looking back, he'd only been gone for for eight years. Yeah, yeah, it was still quite fresh. Yeah, but it did that. That was decades ago to me because I was only little. I was only ten. Yeah. You know, so the concept of nineteen eighty just seemed ah, oh, that's like another planet. It's decades ago. Um, so it's funny that I have no sort of relation to that time being oh it's quite raw still like yoko should should be crying she's sad you know yeah um but no it was something about him he he struck me as a passionate guy who made mistakes you know was a hypocrite at times but was dedicated to the idea of creating above everything else Mm. and um i never really faltered although probably my all-time favorite Beatles record is solely written by Paul McCartney so which one's that which is Blackbird oh really yeah it's pretty immaculate stuff it really is but um did you watch uh Get Back when it came out at Christmas I've been trying to watch it on Apple and it just won't play and I don't know what's going on <laughs> um, maybe my free trial's ended yeah <laughs> I really want it. I really want to watch it. Yeah, it's good. I recommend it for people who are big John fans because you see a kind of side of him that you haven't really seen before. Because my, yeah, the most time I had spent with him sort of footage-wise is in that Imagine documentary as well, actually. And uh, you you do get to see some of the less pleasant parts of him um, around the writing of How Do You Sleep and things like that. Oh, man, that... where he records How Do You Sleep with George. Yeah. You see George there playing away and you're like, oh shit, George is in on the beef. It was like proper rap beef, you know? Yeah. Especially when he ad-libs at the end. He's like, how do you sleep, you cunt? Yeah. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm 10 years old. I guess it is like one of the sort of proto-diss tracks really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Can't really think of anything that pre predates it. The yeah. only thing you've done was yesterday is so such a cruel thing to say. Yeah. To a guy that he basically wrote everything with yeah. um pretty brutal stuff 
Yeah. It's like, well, you can stick the knife in in a way that you can't with anyone else when you know someone that well, I guess. Oh, yeah. Knows yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly where absolutely. to get it. Absolutely. Which is the, 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 the exact rap battle philosophy, you know. If I know you, you're really, you're really going down because uh, these yeah. words are going to hurt. Yeah. And it must have hurt, man. Yeah. It must have hurt. Did you do a lot of rap battling when in your early days as a yeah. rapper? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, That's a sort of similar thing, is it? You, you do your do your research and then, uh, you know, no, the not in my era. No, <laughs> I was in the era before uh, the rap battles, how they are now. So in my era, it was like freestyle, right. and you had to you had to uh, improvise on the spot. So it's very different. Mm. Um, not as good, actually, because. The way it's structured now is like a boxing match, you know. Two guys paired together, go off for a few months, come back with three verses each about the other person's very specific, very well thought through, incredibly clever. Mm. Whereas when you're improvising, it's like, eh, it's hit and miss. I mean, when it hits, it's amazing. Yeah. It's like, how the hell did you come up with that? And it becomes like very much like observational mm. riffing and you say something about the other dude that the whole room can see. But you don't really know that much about mm. him, so it doesn't hit uh, in the same yeah. way as as pre-prepared uh, rhymes. But it is kind of like magic when it does hit. There's a good bit in Dreaming the Beatles where he talks about the, the Rob Sheffield book where he talks about um, Lil, the Lil Wayne song, Help, okay. which says, I'm from the dirt where the Beatles and John Lennon be at. <laughs> um, There's a great bit where he... He quotes John Lennon in 1970. Even London was somewhere we used to dream of, and London's nothing. I came out of the fucking sticks to take over the world, and you can hear the same. You can hear that same attitude in Wheezy's voice. I quite like that. Although you know, John Lennon did grow up in a house called Mendips. That's you know, wow. <laughs> but yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice comparison though. I think Mendips. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. I've never heard that before. Mm. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, I think there's correlation there. You know, yeah. that level of confidence and stuff. Definitely, the co yeah, mm. the confidence, the braggadocio. Is that the right way of saying it? I don't know. Braggadocio. And, uh, braggadocio, yeah. <laughs> the Revolver Box set's coming out soon, and it's oh, got yeah. an essay written by Questlove. Oh, oh cool. It. One of the things he says is that tax man is like, uh, he compares it to fuck the police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not sure about that. Okay. <laughs> it's a bit of a reach, but, but I kind, yeah. of, I kind of know where he's coming from. Yeah. Slightly more polite version. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Doc Brown, a.k.a. Ben Bailey-Smith, off comedy and Taskmaster and Star Wars, for goodness sake. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> what a gig. Great chat. Lovely, lovely bloke. We had a, a, a bit of a sort of delay problem recording this one. So we had a few little technical issues on the way, but he was very patient and generous with us. Mm. Hopefully it came together in the edit nicely. So next week, we'll be back with a fabulous episode with a cult comedian, Andrew O'Neill. Andrew's a fabulous comedian who's been on the circuit and beyond for over a decade now. They've also written a fantastic book called The History of Heavy Metal, which we talk about a bit on the pod. Mm. But uh, they've got exquisite metal knowledge and also great Beatles knowledge and, you know, a lot of strings to their bow that are very fascinating. And we touch on all sorts of things in this one. It really does go around the houses. Yeah, a bit of Alistair Crowley. Um, yeah. yeah, Andrew's so good. And I, I really like the way with this series we've, done quite a bit of metal Beatles crossover mm. stuff. So, yeah, it was just great to talk to Andrew, and I'm really looking forward to reading their book.
Yeah, and there's some brilliant chat about Paul's performance at Glastonbury. Oh, yeah. Um, and being moved by modern McCartney and things like mm. that. Yeah, it's a fabulous one. So please join us again next week for Andrew O'Neill. And if you want to get that episode early and all the other episodes early and without all the rubbish ads... Um, <laughs> then you can subscribe to the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles or you can subscribe within the Apple Podcast app as I said at the beginning mainly it's a way to support the show if you want us to keep beetling on keep beetling on give, give away the end of the podcast but, um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening and uh, we really appreciate it if you have enjoyed the pod then please this week more than ever Go to <laughs> Apple and leave us a nice review. <laughs> and um, that's very much appreciated. Yes, thank you very much for listening. And keep beetling on. Keep beetling on. Please. Please. Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. 